Yeah, well, thank you for hosting me. And uh, I, I was able to arrive uh, yesterday and enjoy some spectacular weather, uh, which I appreciated as an opportunity to get acquainted with Oslo. Before I begin um, on cybersecurity, let me just uh, briefly digress uh, to make a, an observation. Um, as you probably read, um, Senator John McCain passed away over the weekend. Um, he was an American hero. I had the privilege of working with him when I was Secretary of Homeland Security and staying in touch with him after. And going back to his days uh, when he was uh, in the Navy and shot down in Vietnam, up until literally the moment he drew his last breath, he was a consummate public servant. Um, many of you probably have heard the story that when he was in a Vietnamese prison camp, he was offered the opportunity to leave early because his father was the commander of the Pacific Fleet for the U.S. Navy. And he refused to leave because he felt that would betray his uh, comradeship with his fellow soldiers uh, and would look as if it was an effort to take advantage of his father's status. That is the embodiment of honor. And, in, you know, in a day in which there's a lot of skepticism about institutions and norms, uh, reminding ourselves what honor and norms are about is sometimes very refreshing. So, um, you know, our, my condolences to his family. He will really be sorely missed. Um, so let me step back. And uh, again, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this issue, which has been very much in the news, uh, not just in the U.S., but around the world. <clears throat> if I step back to when I was in office in the early part of this century, um, we, you know, we were aware of cyber threats, but most of what people were thinking about were activities by criminals, stealing credit cards, things of that sort. That's bad, but it is generally considered to be a police matter. Um, there was also, however, the use of um, increasing use of cyber for espionage purposes. And as the years went by, it became evident that cyber was not just being used for um, national a security espionage, but for commercial espionage, particularly the Chinese, uh, were taking a huge amounts of trade secrets and confidential business data and turning it over to their own enterprises, uh, which became the subject of increasing complaints um, in the United States and elsewhere about the, the inappropriateness of using organs of national security to gain business advantages. <clears throat> One of the interesting things to realize is that one of the reasons um, cyber became very useful for this kind of information gathering was the development of a series of additional tools uh, in the analytics space and in the storage space that all of a sudden made it possible to use large amounts of data in a way that wouldn't have been the case earlier. And I'll give you an example. Uh, a couple years ago, the Office of Management and Budget, I'm sorry, the uh, Office of Personnel Management in the United States which houses all of the background checks for every single U.S. government employee and applicant, over 25 million, discovered that they'd been hacked and literally all of the files had been sucked out. And uh, obviously, um, there was an intelligence purpose in doing that, in building a database of Americans. Now, 20 years ago, even if you could have gotten that, it would have been pointless because who's going to spend the time necessary to go through 25 million files? But nowadays, with the development of storage and analytics, it is possible to go through that and pick out what you want very rapidly. 
So the enhancement of cyber as a tool of espionage was partly an outgrowth of the development of analytical tools um, and storage capacity, which made it realistic for the first time to digest and make use of uh, petabytes and terabytes of data. But more recently, I think people in the national security area have viewed the issue as not just a matter of theft of intellectual property or data, but the possibility of using cyber as a domain of warfare to complement in what we sometimes call blended warfare activities that occur on the ground at, at sea and in the air. We've seen examples of this <clears throat> through what is sometimes called hybrid warfare, uh, largely not very far from here uh, along the Russian border. And uh, what the Russians have done, this goes back to 2007, when Estonia was attacked with a denial-of-service attack because there was uh, anger in Russia about the pulling down or the movement of a war memorial. 2008, the invasion of Georgia, the physical invasion was accompanied by an attack on the command and control systems. So we've seen for the last 10 years this move into the domain of being a, yet another element of physical warfare. Even more recently, though, the destructive capacity of cyber attacks, even on a standalone basis, has become manifest. And right in our backyard here is a case in point, if you think of Maersk and what happened with the NotPetya ransomware very, very recently. Uh, as you may know, NotPetya was a, an exploit that took advantage of a vulnerability in a, in a, a version of Windows. It was embedded in an accounting software package that was developed in the Ukraine, um, kind of like a TurboTax or an accounting program like Quicken. Um, and then it rapidly spread, not just in the Ukraine, but around the world, partly because in the case of Maersk, for example, they had an office in the Ukraine that was using that software package. Once the malware got into that, it spread virally across uh, all of the network. And that's one of the interesting expressions when we talk about things spreading virally, because in many ways, when you look at these kinds of attacks, you have to think about it the way you would consider an epidemic or even a biological weapon, something that is not necessarily well controlled. That once it's released into the wild, the possibility of it getting out and collaterally damaging other things becomes a very high risk. Uh, it's hardly a precision weapon in many cases. And one of the consequences of that is often the, con the, the impact is much wider than maybe originally anticipated, and you can debate whether the Russians who attacked using non-pet intended it to be confined to the Ukraine or wanted to send a message to anybody who did business with the Ukraine. But it also has some interesting international law uh, issues about what your obligation is to not engage in warfare against civilians when you're using a weapon that is almost by definition indiscriminate. Um, it's not the only time the Ukrainians experienced a direct cyber attack. In 2015 and 2016, around Christmas time, the lights went out in the electric grid because there were attacks on the, on the controlling systems in, in that grid. And in the U.S., um, relatively recently, the Department of Homeland Security announced, put out a bulletin, not only indicating that they had found malware on the electric grid in the United States, but that the Russians had placed the malware there. They were able to tie it back to the Russians and were willing to publicly identify it as a Russian exploit. 
Now, as you know, when you're dealing with malware, you're never quite sure, is this there for reconnaissance or is it pre-positioning a weapon? And the answer may well be, uh, it's unclear, that you know, once the malware is in the network, depending on the instructions it gets, it can either simply send back information or it can do something more damaging. But what is clear is we're talking about the lo locating of potentially destructive weapons in critical civilian infrastructure in various places in the world. And that, of course, is a matter of great concern in the U.S., and <clears throat> I think it's probably becoming a greater concern here as well. I, I would also um, be remiss if I didn't say, and I, I should say I'm, I'm on a I co-chair a commission with Anders Rasmussen on this issue, um, our elections are now potentially coming under attack. Uh, the possibility of affecting voter databases or um, other parts of the infrastructure is of increasing concern. There again in the Ukraine, several years ago, there was an attack not directly on the voting infrastructure, but on the reporting infrastructure that the media was using to report on the presidential election. And the theory was that the results that would be announced initially would incorrectly name the pro-Russian candidate as having won. The attackers presumably knew in the end the truth would come out, but they thought that by creating that uncertainty, they would actually undermine confidence in the election result. Uh, if that sounds familiar, I don't need to say anything more. So how do we deal with this issue? Because this is a, a, a real challenge um, and presents some... Uh, complications that are not normally to be found in the national security area. Um, simply put, most of the assets of critical infrastructure are in private hands. <clears throat> Unlike the airspace, for example, which is basically controlled by the government. So if you have a, an, uh, a bomber or a missile coming into our airspace in the U.S., it's going to be the responsibility of the Air Force to deal with that issue. Uh, it's also going to be quite clear where it's coming from because we're going to see where it launched or where it took off. <clears throat> that is not true, as you know, in the world of cyber. An attack can be launched from anywhere, within and without, and it's not necessarily going to be evident initially who launched it. Um, there is basically no perimeter in cyberspace. So we have insiders sometimes launching attacks. We have, even for air-gapped systems, USB uh, sticks, coming with malware can be inserted into the system. Um, you can have somebody sitting in a coffee shop in downtown Austin, Texas, who can use the Wi-Fi there to launch an attack uh, and would appear as if it was coming from within the, Uni the United States. So this creates uh, a, a, the question of how do we work together in the public and the private sector to maximize our ability to protect our national security assets. Now, the U.S. government has evolved... Um, several iterations of how to deal with this. And I'm not going to tell you this is done by any means. Uh, when I was in office, um, there was a national cybersecurity strategy that we put together at the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Defense that was the first effort to try to pull together a comprehensive strategy on how to deal with cyber attacks. And that included all kinds of things about allocating responsibilities, um, trying to get some understanding of what our doctrine would be about responding to an attack, and a series of similar kinds of issues. It was originally classified, but it was subsequently declassified in the Obama administration. Part of what um, we did was we set up information sharing and analysis centers 
<clears throat> which were designed to bring together within each of the kind of major categories of economic activity the major elements of the private sector and the public sector to share information and best practices on how to deal with cyber threats and cyber response. But I have to say, these are not real-time organizations. In other words, they're not working at machine speed. They're more addressed at the kind of policy level or operational level strategically. It's not something's coming, how do we immediately react? The next iteration of trying to actually get more tactical was the NCIC, the National Cybersecurity and uh, Communications Integration Center. That is in the Department of Homeland Security, and it houses what is supposed to be the principal mechanism for warning the private sector when something's coming at them and sharing information about how you might blunt that. It is also the organization affiliated with the CERT, Computer Emergency Response Team, which helps the private sector with response. Even there, though, uh, you're only as good as the amount of information you get. And although there's always the hope that the private sector will share information in real time or close to real time, it doesn't always happen. There are legal reasons why there may be reluctance. Um, there are sometimes the fact that the private sector doesn't see something happening. Um, sometimes, again, because we're not literally linked in a network, that may slow up the process of sharing. Even more recently, this past summer, the Department of Homeland Security announced a national risk management center, which is going to try to look with the private sector at putting together a list of the key assets and the key things that need to be protected to make sure that we don't have a serious uh, devastating cybersecurity incident. So these efforts to pull together centers, sharing environments, and things like this are part of the process of getting uh, the public and the private sector to work together. One of the things which we talked about doing when I was in office and I think is now actually being pursued is actually trying to co-locate and bring together elements of the private sector, particularly the financial community, um, in with the government in the actual um, uh, operation center, security operation center, so that there can be a sharing not only of what's happening in real time, but an understanding on the part of the government what the private sector views as the most vulnerable and most consequential areas that might come under attack. Because the government doesn't necessarily always understand where the real weak point is and how from an, uh, from an integrated system standpoint, uh, you know, what might be the fulcrum of what would be a very devastating attack. Now, as I said, we're on a journey. We are not completed. Um, and the reason is because there are some obstacles to working with the public and the private sector together. One of them, which is an issue for us, I don't know if it is here, is the issue of clearances. It is often the case that information you get about an attack, <clears throat> where it's coming from, uh, what it looks like, what the particular type of malware or exploit is, comes in a way that is very sensitive. And therefore, if you're not cleared, you may not be able to see much about what that is. And I'll be honest and say that sometimes uh, the people on the um, information collection side of the spectrum get extremely sensitive about anything that they imagine might uh, tip off somebody that they're doing something that's collecting information. On the other hand, the people who are responsible for making use of the information say, well, if we can't use it, what are you getting it for? So 
balancing this and making sure we can clear more people and get them in a position where they can actually be informed, I think, is one task. Um, I think the private sector, in terms of its own sharing, uh, still labors with liability and reputational concerns. The fear is if they share information, they may be held liable for violating privacy. And I know there's some issues of privacy here in Europe, which we don't have in the U.S. But even in the U.S., there's a concern about reputational damage or liability uh, if someone winds up getting sued. And so the lawyers wind up trying to slow things up. There again, I think our solution is to try to create legal safe harbors um, that allow for sharing, and as long as it's done in good faith, insulate you from being sued later because you violated somebody's privacy. Um, so again, that's a work in progress. Another challenge for the private sector is how do they know how much to invest? I mean, in my day job, a lot of what I do when I work with companies is to try to give them guidance uh, because they're inundated with, quote, solutions for cyber attacks. And every solution claims it's going to solve the problem. I find most of them are new companies which usually have the word blue and fire somewhere in the name. And nobody can tell the difference. You could bankrupt yourself buying this stuff. So a lot of the challenge is getting companies to understand what do they need to buy, what is out there that fits their particular needs, and then to create a financial incentive. Uh, you know, will they get a, a lower premium with their insurance? Um, we have something in the U.S. called the Safety Act, which in the case of counterterrorism technologies says that if you have an approved, government-approved technology for counterterrorism, then if it, you use it and it turns out that notwithstanding the technology there was a terrorist attack, you get liability protection in terms of a cap on damages and no punitive damages. So that means for the business executive or the business owner, they can say, okay, if I invest this in the technology, I'm going to get an actually a financial benefit. And that's an incentive. And I'd like to see us move that into the area of um, <clears throat> cyber as well, because that would encourage investment. So let me step back and say, then, what do we in an ideal world or close to ideal world view as the role the public and the private sector ought to play together in dealing with cybersecurity? And I will begin by saying I do not think it is ever going to be entirely a government responsibility because the only way the government could be responsible would be to live on all of your networks. And that would not be – there are countries in the world that would love to do that. My country is not one of them. I don't think yours is either. Um, so the question is, what is the right allocation of responsibilities between the public and the private sector? And before I lay that out, let me talk about the whole issue of cybersecurity as a spectrum. It is um, – in, in the world of counterterrorism, there's the expression left of boom, right of boom. Uh, left of boom is how do you stop an explosion, right of boom is what do you do after an attack. There's a similar concept in cybersecurity. Um, you have to begin by saying, what are the threats? Who's out there and what are they trying to do? Then what are the vulnerabilities? What are the elements of your network that are vulnerable? And then as you start to look at your various solutions, how do you protect your perimeter? How do you deal with the endpoints when they're not inside your perimeter because everybody brings their own device there to the network these days? How do you deal with the issue of identification and privileges and access? to parts of the, the network. 
how do you monitor in real time what's going on in the network so that when you're penetrated, as you will inevitably be, you can determine that something is in there and you can take action to remediate it. What is your plan to be resilient in terms of backups, in terms of being able to recover, in terms of being able to work around a problem? Then there is a supply chain issue. What about all the people that you're dealing with that are affecting your network? Your hardware supplier, your software supplier, uh, the, the heating and cooling technician who came in to check your air conditioning like they did at Target uh, up in, in Minnesota, and that there was malware on the guy's computer, and when he plugged into Target, the malware ran into Target. And then what is your response? How do you deal in response once you've discovered an attack? In that spectrum, the private sector plays the major role, but the government can do different things. So let me give you some examples of what the government can do. On the issue of threat, and this comes back to the point I made earlier, there are times the government can understand what is in the adversary's toolbox before the tool has been taken out and used. And although that gets sensitive because for obvious reasons, if you are able to get into the adversary's toolbox, you don't want the adversary to know it or they'll close it. But sometimes you need to make a decision that it's more important to warn about what might be coming, uh, even if it puts some risk in terms of your collection capability. This is a version of what occurred during World War II when, as you, many of you may remember, or know, having read, I mean, I read about it, um, Churchill at one point got information because of the breaking of the German military code about an attack on the city of Coventry. And he had to decide, was he going to warn about the attack, and then the Germans would realize the code was broken, or would he not say anything? He decided he wasn't going to say anything. And that might well have been the right decision, but that's what I call a Coventry decision, and you have to make that all the time. Next on vulnerability, the government often is aware of vulnerabilities, as are people in the private sector, that are undisclosed. Uh, in the U.S., we have a process called the vulnerability equity process. And what it's designed to do is to ask the question, is this a vulnerability we should disclose to the uh, software designer or the hardware designer um, so they can fix it? Um, or is it something that we need to use in order to penetrate the adversary? And generally the view, and I'm, I should say I'm on a, something called the Global Commission on Stability in Cyberspace, generally the view is that the presumption ought to be in favor of disclosing widespread vulnerabilities because that can have a major impact on all of our citizens. And even if it means we trade off the ability to exploit it ourselves, the balance ought to be in favor of protecting our citizens. Now, obviously, if you're dealing with a a vulnerability that's very narrowly tailored to a particular device that, let's say, hypothetically is going to the dictator of North Korea, you might want to be quiet about that. But on broad, on broad range vulnerabilities, the government does have a role in disclosing those when they're discovered. On issues like perimeter, um, privileged access, endpoint security, um, and uh, Di continuous diagnosis and monitoring. Here, these are within the network. And the government is not going to simply sit there and look at what's in your network absent being asked to do so. So here, the government probably can best give information about best practices, about the nature of malware that's been detected, 
about um, things that need to be patched, but the, the laboring ore is likely to be on the private sector in terms of actually carrying out these functions. On the issue of supply chain, there's a, an interesting discussion now taking place about, well, how do you help companies understand whether the hardware and software they're getting is vulnerable or not? Um, and how do you even let ordinary citizens know? Now, we're getting to the so-called Internet of Things, where your refrigerator is going to be smart and your, you know, your uh, camera and your doorbell. I don't know if you have that here in, in Norway, but you have like literally you can set your um, locks from remotely on the Internet and you can you know, ha look through your doorbell. All this generates data. And once you are connected up to the network, if that's not secure, your entire network can be compromised. Case in point, some years back, the Chamber of Commerce in the U.S. in Washington was hacked because there was a thermostat in a remote building that was unsecured. It was penetrated and it connected to the network and they got into the Chamber of Commerce. Um, right now, there is no requirement that these Internet of Things devices even have the minimal ability to change password make sure you're updating, and patch vulnerabilities. Does that need to change? Does the government need now to get involved in either regulating or at least certifying those kinds of smart devices that are reliable and those that are not reliable? Um, some say the government ought to use its acquisition authority when it buys things to insist on a certain level of security and that that will start to drive behavior in the private sector, which will benefit everybody. So I think there's some interesting policy discussions to be had about how do you raise even the base level of security on all of the components that come into our, not just our critical systems, but our daily, everyday systems. And, and in this I would underscore for the policymakers, what happens over here doesn't stay over here. Even the most innocuous, trivial, connected thing, if it's part of the network, is going to wind up infecting the network. And MERSC is a great example because you see what happens with the accounting software package and it spreads throughout the entire network. So there needs to be an understanding this is truly a case where the weakest link affects the entire chain. Finally, we get to the issue of response. When there is a serious uh, incident, what can the government do to respond? And there I think we have made a lot of progress. We do have these uh, computer emergency response teams that do work with the private sector when there's an issue in helping them get back up again. We actually deployed a team like that to Estonia in 2007 to help them to recover from their situation. And in the U.S., we have, have written a national response framework for cybersecurity that lays out and the roles and responsibilities of the various government agencies and the private sector when it comes to responding to a major incident. Now, we haven't yet had that major incident, um, so it's not, this is not necessarily road-tested under realistic conditions, but at least it's a, a good starting point in terms of allocating responsibilities in the event of, of, of an attack, and I think you can probably get it on the Internet. Finally, let me turn to three other sets of activities that are relevant to cybersecurity where the government actually plays the major role and the private sector supports. Um, one is the issue of botnet takedowns. 
when you have these massive botnets or you have servers that are launching large amounts of, of malware, uh, increasingly the effort is being made to take them down and get them off the Internet. And that's an issue where the government, at least in the U.S., you need to get court permission in order to do certain things because it would violate the law for the private sector to do it on its own. But once you have the court permission or legal permission, then the private sector works with the government to take down the, the uh, botnet. Um, another area where the government has primary, if not sole, responsibility is what is sometimes called active defense, but is really probably more in the nature of offense. Um, there's a debate in the U.S. about so-called hacking back. Hacking back is someone steals your data or uh, you want to go and get it back. So you want to go into their server and get the data back and maybe purge their server of the data. Um, that's a little bit like someone robs my house. Uh, at least in the U.S., I don't have the permission to go into their house and get my stuff back. Um, I understand the impulse to do this, but I think there are all kinds of problems with the private sector doing this on its own. First of all, as you know, most of the time the attack does not come directly. It, it goes through various hot points. The potential for hurting innocent people or taking down an innocent server um, is very high with very serious consequences. For the private sector to do this on its own would also break the law, at least in the U.S. Um, and you could also wind up escalating into a situation where what was a serious but not devastating infraction suddenly became an, an actual conflict. So my view, although there'll get p different views on this, but my view is if there's going to be uh, hacking back in someone else's network, it's a U.S. government function. You know, the government decides if it's going to do engage in active operations in someone else's network. Um, just like in the physical world, the government controls that. It's not We don't let the private sector decide they're going to drop a bomb somewhere. It's a government decision if we're going to engage in military activity. And that leads me to the final area where I think the government has probably exclusive uh, uh, responsibility, and that is in developing a doctrine of deterrence. And there's a lot of debate about this now. After the nuclear age was born in the 50s, there was a project called Project Solarium. And this was an effort to come up with a doctrine of warfare in the nuclear age. We take for granted the fact that there's a very strong taboo, although it may be changing, against using nuclear weapons in any case other than if you literally had, like, you know, mutually assured destruction. In other words, we don't use nuclear weapons as a kind of an alternative to an ordinary bomb or missile because we recognize once you start using a nuclear weapon, the stopping point is not clear. So there is no such thing as a, as a kind of a localized nuclear weapon. Now, we've never officially said we'll never do it, but if you actually look at the history of both Russian and U.S. activities and Chinese activities, even when things have gotten a little heated um, in various conflicts, no one has used a nuclear weapon. Uh, in the Middle East, we've come close a couple times, but again, there's been that taboo. Um, this was by, by no means clear at the beginning. I mean, if you go back in the 50s, there were people who thought, hey, nuclear weapons, like, you know, it's like uh, TNT. Use it in the Korean War, use it freely. 
But ultimately, the decision was made that the inability to stage escalation made that uh, strategy to be avoided. We need a similar project with cyber. What constitutes an act of war in cyber? We are too prone, I find, to use the phrase warfare as a metaphor for all kinds of things that are bad, but they're not really warfare. And the danger with that is, once you say something's warfare, all of a sudden there are a whole set of tools you may use that you wouldn't be able to use otherwise. So we need to really understand what is warfare. I mean, I think the U.S. is, is pretty clear that if you took down the air traffic control system and planes crashed and people died, kind of like an, a cyber 9-11, that would be regarded as an act of war. But, for example, when you um, threaten, when you steal secrets, for example, as spies have done since the days of the Bible when Joshua was sent spies into Canaan, we don't go to war. We generally complain, we'll kick a few diplomats out, but we don't launch you know, an attack because someone stole our stuff. We need to have a, an understanding of what the red lines are and what the doctrine of escalation is. And that's something the governments are going to have to do. And I know that in NATO, they're working on this with the cyber uh, center and in the U.S. as well. So that's my kind of sense of what the response is. It's a blended response. In some areas, the private sector takes the lead and the government supports in some, they have separate domains, and in some, the government takes the lead, and the private sector either plays no role or supports. Um, but one thing I will tell you is this problem is not going away. And the escalation of serious attacks with real-world consequences in the physical world, the tempo has picked up. And I'm sad to say that if you want to look at a test bed or a Petri dish, look at the Ukraine because everything that's being done there is something that can be done elsewhere. And unfortunately for the Ukrainians, they're the test tube in which the Russians are operating with their various kinds of tactics and techniques. So with that, I'm happy to take some questions.